0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.
1: So welcome again, and welcome to Embracing Diversity, Making and Unmaking Race, Ethnicity, and Difference in the 21st Century. We're delighted to see you all here this morning for this conference that's celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. First, I want to welcome our speakers and moderators that have come from all over the country to be with us here today, and also to welcome faculty, students, members of the community, and a special warm welcome to our returning Rixery Fellows, and also to the students of CSRE 11. I see many of you here, and the sign-up sheet is going around. <laughs> and uh, it's a special class associated with the conference today. For anyone who didn't have the chance to be present last night, and Um, You would like to know more about who we are and why we are so proud of ourselves and why we are celebrating. (laughs) I draw your attention to the program. It's beautifully documented in there. We've managed to thank um, all of the wonderful people who have been part of the great interdependent effort that CSRE is. We began last night with a a powerful address by Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings on educating in the post-Brown era. And this was followed by some great food and music by wonderful Stanford groups. Uh, we, We had a terrific time. But before I say more about today and our topics and themes, I'd like to introduce now Dean Richard Soller, who is our new Dean of the Humanities and Sciences here at Stanford. Richard Soller arrived on the Stanford campus from the University of Chicago only last March, a mere six, what, seven months ago. Yet already his vision and his enthusiasm and his willingness to listen has had a huge impact on the campus. So it's my pleasure to call uh, Dean Seller.
2: Thanks very much Hazel. Um, I'm delighted to be able to uh, greet you this morning and extend a, a warm welcome to all of you. Uh, I think it's important that we celebrate and take stock of uh, of the successes of the Center for the Comparative Study of Race and Ethnicity. Uh, They make a crucial contribution to the campus, uh, the university, and uh, we we need to express, I need to express a warm thank you to Hazel and the other leaders of the Center, the faculty and students who participate. the whoops! I, I need to stay off the computer. Um, my apology. Uh, the title of of the conference, uh, "Embracing Diversity, Making and Unmaking Race, Ethnicity, and Difference in the 21st Century," I think represents uh, both the the potential of race and ethnicity for good in the country, and also for ill. Um, the, the importance of the center is to help deepen our understanding of uh, uh, cultural variety, ethnic difference in this country, uh, to help all of us appreciate those differences. Uh, but also then to study some of the pernicious consequences of the continuing issues of discrimination by race and ethnic groups, uh, which I think uh, we feel sometimes acutely on campuses. Uh, I I actually don't think that universities have uh, a direct responsibility to solve all evils in the world. I think we need to understand what our mission is. What I do think, though, is that we have as universities a special responsibility to be part of the solution uh, in the realm of education. Stanford and other leading universities, I think, have to renew their effort to increase diversity in higher education. I think we're aware that this is a really tough challenge for all kinds of reasons, and yet If we uh, aim to be among the best universities in the world, uh, that carries with it a responsibility to be deeply involved in education of all parts of American society and now, uh, I would say more broadly, uh, the world. Along those lines then, uh, we are working, I'm, I'm working probably most passionately on in, increasing the number of graduate fellowships, particularly for underrepresented minorities. This seems to me to be a place where Stanford has a special responsibility to make a difference. I think we're seeing movement in that direction. We saw some movement in the, in the provost commitment uh, last spring to fellowships for CCSRE, but I think we need to go f- further than that, and uh, I aim to do that in the coming months. So, uh, again, I want to welcome all of you here. I think it's appropriate that the program starts with a panel on education, um, and I'm pleased to be with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dean Saller. So our focus today is embracing diversity and the issue of how individuals, communities, societies can create and maintain effective diverse communities. We live, we have said it repeatedly, in an unprecedented age of racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity, and race, ethnicity, and culture powerfully organize our lives. How are we to think about these differences, and how should we think about these differences? Now, from our conference title, if you're looking at the program, and the use of the word embrace, I think it's clear that we at CCSRE have taken a positive, a hopeful orientation toward the word um, diversity. Uh, One definition of of the term embrace that we've used is to welcome, to take advantage, to eagerly and willingly embrace. Now in embracing diversity, though, how do we distinguish those differences we want to make, as we say in the title, and celebrate from those differences that we must erase and want to unmake? And that's really our question for the day. America, and America is our primary focus today, we can and we certainly will in in future classes and conferences consider diversity in the global context, but today we have the focus on America. America has always been diverse and equally always extremely nervous about this diversity and whether this diversity will tear us apart or somehow, if approached judiciously, somehow make us stronger, better, more productive, wiser. Now, the most famous model for diversity in America is that of the melting pot. And, of course, this is the idea that people from a wide variety of ethnic backgrounds were welcome in America, but they should melt or assimilate into the Northern European standard that was the foundation for our country. Now, in our first CSRE 11 class last Friday, uh, Monica McDermott, who is a professor of psychology, she, what did I say? Oh, psychology! I like her so much. I absorbed her into our department. I'm sorry. I, I won't do that. She's a professor of she's a professor of sociology. Excuse me. Okay. Very, very importantly, but what she did. Um, one of the things I liked is that she showed us something I'd never seen before, and I just thought it was wonderful. Which was um, this uh, depiction. If I can get here, it was yeah, the larger one um, depiction of the melting pot. There really was a pot. Who knew? Who knew? This is amazing. You have to look up if you can't quite see it below the E Pluribus Unum. You can see the handle and then you see the pot and you see people assembled all around it. This was from Henry Ford's English school, which he established in 1914. And when you After you finished in Ford's um, English School, School for English, this was uh, a photograph from the graduation ceremony. And the idea is that employees would come wearing the dress that was customary in their native Italy, Poland, Germany, Ireland. And then on one side, it's, it's blurry here, I'll show you another one, but the idea is you would step off, symbolically step off the immigrant ship, then you would pass into the big melting pot there, and then you would emerge in identical suits waving American flags. And you can see, this is another place here, you can see the the suits and the flags stepping down from the big pot. So there were a number of these pots that they moved around from one school to another. So I, I, I thought you needed that graphic image. Anyway, that's one model. And although there are still clearly many who would vote for that model, I would say that it's largely been replaced in the American imagination by models where people can come together and effectively function, but still comfortably hold on to their ethnic distinctions in at least some domains of their life. But as we'll see beginning with this morning and through today's session, these models of cultural pluralism and multiculturalism are still largely ideals. We know how to celebrate difference extremely well when it comes to food and festivals. We, we did that last night. We're great at it. But when it comes to different ways of thinking, feeling, acting, differences in approaching the world and how to include these differences in our communities, schools, and workplaces, we've only just begun. Moreover, we have not begun to confront the unwanted differences, the inequality that was established at America's founding and that is continually reproduced in daily life. Our task, I think, as, as, um, as individuals, as conference attendees, as communities, is to distinguish those differences that are the source of meaning, value, motivation, pride, identity, and those that are claimed by those associated with a particular racial and ethnic group, the differences that we want to mark and celebrate and include, and to distinguish those differences Uh, from those among people that derive from historically imposed evaluations and actions of those outside the group, differences that are not claimed by those associated with the group, that are resisted by them, and that systematically accord them less value, power, and privilege in society. So this is our continuing challenge, and it's one that we will highlight today in four areas. We will begin with education, then religion, then we'll move to immigration, and then finally the public sphere. So with this, I'd like to welcome to the podium and pass the mic to Professor Prudence Carter, who is also new to Stanford. Uh, She has recently arrived from Harvard. She is also a sociologist. I'd like to claim her as a psychologist, too. (laughs) uh, She is currently an associate professor here in the School of Education. Prudence?
3: Thank you, Hazel. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, thank you. I like to hear that. I'm a call and response person, so it's nice to hear good morning back in return. I'd like to welcome you, first of all, to the, our first panel of CCSRE's 10th anniversary conference. It's really a pleasure for me to be here um, as a newly arrived professor, as a new affiliate of the, um, of CCSRE, and I'm also just very happy to be standing here and joining the panel with such illustrious colleagues, Professors Linda Darling-Hammond and goodwin Liu, Our goal with this panel today is to address some of the critical issues that affront communities around the nation, the miseducation and undereducation of children of color, specifically black and brown children, in this period that I refer to as a testocracy that is, the era of testing and accountability as mandated by the No Child Left Behind law, and also in this immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court decision that signifies how much the highest court in the land is indeed no longer a friend, as Professor Latson Billings mentioned last night. Now, as we know, the 1950s, the mid-1950s with Brown, brought about the so-called integrationist era of education with um, the proclaimed demise of segregation, uh, of de jure segregation in U.S. schools, although in the 1970s and 80s when I was attending school in the Mississippi Delta, I still felt like I was living in a pre-Brown era. Um, But as we think about what the real effects of Brown have been, and also how decisions over time, as Professor Latson-Billings mentioned last night, have really undermined the mission and goals of Brown, we asked some very key questions. And today, I want to just share with you a few kind of facts that I think suggest to us that we're in a crisis moment in American education. Some of these things, as reported by a January 2004 report from Professor Gary Orfield and Shang-Ming Lei of the Civil Rights Project, which was formerly at Harvard, give us such statistics as this. American public schools are now only 60% white, not nationwide, and nearly one in four U.S. students are in states with a majority of non-white students. Except in the South and Southwest, most white students have little contact with minority students. More than one-third of black and Latino students attend schools that are at least 90% or greater in terms of their minority enrollment. Retention or flunking rates as I call them among African-American students are greater than the national average. The national average is 10% based on a recent report from the National Center of Educational Statistics. In African-Americans, nearly one in five African-American students are being retained. In 2005, national dropout rates, the national dropout rate was 9%. 9%. However, among Latinos, 22.5% dropped out of high school. Compared to 2.9% Asian-Americans, 6% white, and 10.4% black. And then, of course, the biggest elephant in the room among educational researchers, in terms of race and education, is the significant differences, what is commonly referred to as the achievement gap, between non-Asian minorities and white and Asian students. Data from the NCEs also showed that over a period from 1971 to 1999, the average eighth grade white student read at a higher level than the average 12th grade black student. Then let's think about what's going on within the schools. Only slightly about a third of all black and Latino students report enrollment in college preparatory classes compared to about half of their white and Asian students. Indeed, the gap is there. And I would argue if we think about intersectional issues even more, we have a widening gap when we think about gender. While this gap transcends race overall, when we examine specific groups like African-Americans, we see that in some cases, particularly in terms of college enrollment, there is a three to one, in some cases four to one. I've even heard ratios of six to one in terms of the female to male ratio of those who are attending college. We are in a crisis moment. Now in this country, desegregated schools have been offered as the principal aspect of the panacea for ameliorating the educational condition of black and brown children. For they are supposed to provide an opportunities context, better conditions for schools, access to more experienced teachers, to classrooms with smaller teacher-student ratios, to more rigorous academic preparation, to exposure to better informational resources about college and placement jobs. Desegregated schools have been believed to be the conduits to mobility in American society. Yet are resources enough to make desegregated schools beneficial to all of their students? And that's the question I keep contending with in terms of not trying to romanticize what Brown brought about, but thinking about the crisis that we are in at this moment. I keep hearing the words of the scholar, thinker, and sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois. Some work, someone whose work, unfortunately, I was not introduced to in my own graduate courses or undergraduate courses when I attended elite schools in the East. But Du Bois foreshadowed one problem that schools in this country would face, would confront as the forces of racism and dominance permeated their walls. And I quote, using a little bit of old antiquated language, but Du Bois was always on time, he said, The Negro needs neither segregated nor mixed schools. What he needs is education. What he must remember is that there is no magic, either in mixed or in segregated schools. A mixed school with poor and unsympathetic teachers, with hostile opinion and no teaching concerning black folk is bad. A segregated school with ignorant placeholders, inadequate equipment, poor salaries, and wretched housing is equally bad. Other things being equal, the mixed school is broader, more natural basis for the education of all youth. It gives wider contacts. It inspires greater self-confidence, and it suppresses the inferiority complex. But other things are seldom equal. End of quote. Now as the the processes of desegregation have occurred, second and third generation problems have also emerged according to the researcher and scholar, Professor Percy Bates. Bates has argued that the second generation of desegregation problems stem from the inequities within schools rather than between schools. Problems including educational matters such as unequal access to certain types of classrooms and programs programs, and the disproportionately high rates of suspension and dropping out of minority students. There is also ability grouping and tracking, frequently referred to as resegregation within schools. I refer refer you to the work of Professor Jeannie Oakes, who unfortunately could not be with us this morning, and she certainly could have talked a bit more about that. Then Bates talks about the third generation problems of desegregation concerning the persistent and plaguing academic achievement gap, which I've already referred to. Students and teachers' attitudes and expectations, he argues, fuel these problems. Bates continues, and I quote, third generation issues are closely related to teachers' attitudes and expectations of their students end of quote, and he declared that when teachers expect little, nothing of these students, the students often respond accordingly. And we hear evidence of this widening gap because so many of us are also fueling that narrative as we also produce research um, to kind of answer and address questions, in, in not only conceptually and theoretically, but also in terms of poverty. And these students, these studies have also found something else that to me is quite disturbing, and this is why I call, suggest to you this morning, that we have to consider not only the material logic of schools, but their cultural logic as well. There are studies that show us that even among black and Latino students in so-called resource-rich schools, or good schools, We find these students achieving lower than their white counterparts and their Asian counterparts. Now, mind you, studies show that generally these students do better than their students, their counterparts in segregated minority schools. However, we still see a persistent gap within those research-rich uh, schools. And those who are working with the National Minority Student Achievement Workshop uh, uh, Network, I think of the work of Ronald Ferguson um, and many others, for example, who've been in Shaker Heights, Ohio, uh, Berkeley, Evanston, Ann Arbor, all in areas where there is a high per capita of PhDs and highly educated and middle class African American Latino folks. So I want to suggest to you this morning that we're in a social, historical, cultural, academic moment when the forces determining the connections between race and achievement compel us to think not an either or, but in terms of both ands, that desegregating schooling or in this unfortunate moment post-Brown maybe segregated schooling. While we need to be talking about equity and better access to educational resources, particular in terms of finances, revenue, teacher quality, et cetera, we also need to be examining the cultural logic of schooling, particularly as how our kids are being socially organized in terms of the messages that are being infused through curriculum, through who participates in which extracurricular activities, who has access to those kinds of things. So I ask, where do we go from here in terms of discourse, practice, policy, research in the 21st century as we indeed seek equity and quality education for all school children? I'm just going to pose the questions. Unfortunately, I don't have to answer them this morning, but I'm going to leave these questions definitely for my colleagues who I am very happy to introduce to you today. Professor Goodwin Liu is a law professor at Bolt Hall, specializing in constitutional law, education policy, civil rights, and the Supreme Court. He is also co-director with Christopher Edley, Jr., of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity, which is a multidisciplinary research center at UC Berkeley devoted to issues of racial justice in California and the nation. Before joining the BOLT faculty in 2003, Professor Liu was an appellate litigator at Omelvini and Myers in Washington, D.C., and he clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the United States Supreme Court. He also served as a special assistant to the Deputy Secretary of Education during the Clinton administration. He's a Stanford alumnus, welcome home. He's a Rhodes Scholar and a graduate of Yale Law School. He also serves on the Board of Directors of the ACLU of Northern California, the American Constitutional Society in Washington, D.C., and Chinese for Affirmative Action in San Francisco. Where is Goodwin? There he is. Welcome, Professor Liu. I'm also pleased to introduce to you my new colleague and friend, Professor Linda Darling-Hammond. Truly an impressive individual. She is the Charles E. I hope I don't mess this name up, Ducumann, professor of education at Stanford here, where she has launched the Stanford Educational Leadership Institute and the School Redesign Network and has served as faculty sponsor for the Stanford Teacher Education Program. We refer to that as STEP. They love acronyms here. She is a former president of the American Educational Research Association and also a member of the National Academy of Education. Her research Teaching and policy work focused on issues of school restructuring, teacher quality and educational equity. And from 1994 to 2001, she served as as the executive director of the National Commission on Teaching in America's Future, a blue ribbon panel whose 1996 report, What Matters Most, Teaching for America's Future, led to sweeping policy changes affecting teacher and teacher education. Professor Darling-Hammond has written more than 250 publications. Do you sleep? (laughs) (laughs) Including Preparing Teachers for a Changing World, What Teachers Should Learn and Be Able to Do, with John Bransford from the National Academy of Education, Powerful Teacher Education, Lessons from Exemplary Programs, and Teaching as the Learning professor which received the National Staff Development Council's Outstanding Book Award in 2000. Also, she's written the Right to Learn, which was the recipient of the American Educational Research Association's Outstanding Book Award in 1998. Truly both of these are such illustrious colleagues and people who are speaking truth to power as we think about these issues of equity and education, not only pre-Brown, but also thinking about the post-Brown era, and I welcome them to the podium and look forward to discussion with them. Let me just say a little bit about the structure. After we hear the presentation of each speaker, I will give them both an opportunity to respond to one another, and then we will open the floor for questions and answers. Thank you.
4: Morning. All right. We're getting more awake as the morning gets uh, gets on, and you get your coffee into you. All right. Well, uh, first of all, let me just say uh, congratulations to the uh, uh, CCSRE on the 10th anniversary. Um, it's a wonderful thing to see this idea come to fruition over the last 10 years. Um, you know, I was a student here. Um, let's see, it's 2007. So it's been 20 years since I first uh, set foot on this uh, campus. Um, and uh, we didn't have a CCSRE here uh, 20 years ago. Uh, if, uh, if we had, I'm sure I would be at this conference uh, where you are now. Um, and what a difference it makes uh, to have a focal point for intellectual work um, that's interdisciplinary, that's rigorous and creative, um, that tackles some of the most difficult problems uh, that we face as uh, a society, as a nation, Um, And I think uh, the interdisciplinary nature of the work is just a harbinger of everything that um, scholarship and academia um, is going to become uh, in the future. Not just in this area, but in all the pressing areas in which uh, society faces problems, whether it be the environment, whether it be international security, um, whether it be BioX. uh, All of these uh, sort of uh, trends, if you will, are marching in the same direction, which is that uh, we have to come together across our disciplines and think creatively about common problems uh, if we ever hope to have a chance of solving them. So I'm very honored to be here. Uh, always wonderful also to be back at Stanford. Um, don't be fooled although I get my paycheck from UC Berkeley. Um, I get my sustenance from uh, the, uh, <laughs> from the uh, education I had at Stanford. It was so wonderful for me just to walk into this uh, into this room, and I saw Dandre DeSandis, who I hadn't seen in uh, probably, well, probably 15 years. I saw Pat Jones, one of my former teachers. Um, it's always uh, wonderful to, to think that, wow, isn't it uh, uh, an amazing road that we've come that I should stand on the other side of the podium from uh, one of my former teachers. So this is all just really wonderful. Um, what I'd really like to do this morning is to provide um, a few concepts Uh, that might organize a discussion, not only for the next hour and a half, but also perhaps throughout your day, Um, and this is just picking up on the theme of what uh, does the challenge uh, for us who care about issues of racial justice and diversity look like in a post-Brown era. And what I'd like to do is, is make three observations about the changes in the overall landscape of race. Uh, in the time since Brown. Okay? So Brown was just two generations ago, uh, 50 some odd years ago, but a lot has changed uh, since the time of Brown. and I think it's important to sort of take a step back and take stock of that um, and analyze a little bit um, what the meaning of that cultural icon has uh, for us today. So the first observation I'd like to make Um, is simply stated this way. Um, Brown dealt with a world in which uh, it was a two-class notion of race that was easily tracked into categories of subordination and hierarchy and that has given way to a multi-ethnic, multicultural perspective on race that celebrates this term diversity. Okay. So a lot of contrast in that, in what I just said there. From two to multi, from race to culture and ethnicity, and from concepts of subordination and hierarchy to concepts of diversity. Okay, let me unpack that a little bit because that's a lot to, to take in all at once. I think it's fair to say that in the time of Brown, it was not that difficult to think about from a normative perspective what should be the fundamental ideas that organize a racial justice agenda. The idea of racial subordination was, in a sense, total. In the sense that you had a dominant group and you had a subordinate group, this was the basic configuration of the Brown case, and the domination was total. What I mean by that is that it was what what Jim Crow had been for 60 years, a racial caste system where it wasn't just education, of course, it was voting, it was criminal justice, it was every aspect of social organization and social life organized into a relationship of hierarchy and domination. And so that's why Brown stood as an important symbol of this undoing of this idea of legalized racial caste. In that context, the court didn't even have to say very much to expose the underlying problem. Uh, If you go back and actually read the Brown Decision, you see that it was a very short opinion, maybe 10 or 11 pages of writing. Um, You know, the the justices today, uh, the the, the most recent school desegregation case, you know, was 185 pages. Um, And so that, you know, not that we should count pages, but that is sort of an indicator of, Uh, kind of a canary in the mind of how complex things have become. So, Brown, I would just say, um, was a simpler time in terms of our uh, conceptual vocabulary about what was going on. Now, fast forward over the couple generations and what do you see? Well, what you see is um, uh, one important uh, complexifying factor, which is demography. We are now uh, a nation not of two classes, two groups, but multiple groups. And those multiple groups, I think, um, define a much more complex cultural uh, dynamic in which we have to consider race. For me, as a law scholar, the critical turning point in this conceptualization occurs in 1978 with the Bakke case. You're all familiar with the Bakke case, it's one of the famous cases. It's the case about the University of California Davis Medical School where they had a a 16-seat quota out of a 100-person class reserved for certain underrepresented minority students. And the court invalidates this quota under the Equal Protection Clause, uh, but then uh, says, but it's okay to take race into account in other more limited ways in order to achieve an educationally diverse class. that's the Bakke case. Now what's interesting about this is that Justice Powell, who was the swing voter in the in the Bakke case, wrote a bunch of really interesting things about what affirmative action uh, ought to be about and what it can't be about under the sort of legal rubric um, of the Equal Protection Clause. And I just want to read you a couple things that he said because this is as much sort of legalese as it is social commentary about his perspective on where the nation is. Here's what he said. He said, you know, from the time basically of Plessy to Brown and then to 1978, the Bakke case, the United States had become a nation of minorities. The plural is important here. Each had to struggle and to some extent struggle still to overcome the prejudices not of a monolithic majority, but of a majority composed of various minority groups of whom it was said, perhaps unfairly in many cases, that a shared characteristic was a willingness to disadvantage other groups. And then he went on to say, once the artificial line of a two-class theory of uh, the 14th Amendment he's talking about here is put aside, the difficulties entailed in varying the level of legal protection according to perceived preferred status of a particular racial ethnic group are intractable. The concepts of majority and minority necessarily reflect temporary arrangements and political judgments. The white majority is itself composed of various minority groups, most of which can lay claim to a history of prior discrimination at the hands of the state and private individuals. Not all of these groups can receive preferential treatment, for then the only majority left would be a new minority of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. There is no principled basis for deciding which groups would merit greater protection and which would not, courts would be asked to evaluate the extent of prejudice and consequent harm suffered by various minority groups and those whose societal injury is thought to exceed some arbitrary threshold would then be entitled to preferential classification at the expense of others. And he says this kind of ranking of groups is beyond the judicial competence and uh, I guess he would say beyond our competence um, as well. Okay. So you catch the drift of, of what he's saying. What's interesting about this case is that he's not saying that the 16th seat quota is unfair to the white majority. He's saying the 16th seat quota is unfair to the other minority groups that comprise this new nation of minorities that is the United States of America. Okay, Now, we can quarrel uh, with this uh, idea uh, but And the reason we might quarrel with it has to do with the transformation here of concepts of racial hierarchy to, into, into concepts of pluralism and ethnic diversity. Right? So Powell then goes on to say, although you can't use affirmative action to remedy these historic inequities because they are simply too difficult to sort out, you can, however, he says, use affirmative action to, in a forward-looking way, build an educationally diverse uh, campus based on the idea that people of all ethnic and racial backgrounds have positive contributions to make to the the campus. Now, this this is an idea, I think, you know, here we sit at at a very diverse higher education institution. This is an idea that does have integrity, I think, in and of itself. It's a functional thesis of diversity. Uh, some people pejoratively would say it's an aesthetic notion of diversity, right? It appeals to our cultural tastes as opposed to, uh, shall we say, a sense of justice, right? And so it's this tension, I think, that we sort of live in today. And let me just show you a little bit about how this tension between a justice-based conception of Uh, analyzing our issues of race, which was what was available and easily available at the time of Brown, to this new kind of diversity ethic that we have, how it reveals itself uh, in the cases. Think about the most recent case, the school desegregation cases the the Supreme Court just decided. Um, So you have a school district like Seattle, which says, I think uh, in a very uh, salutary way, says we would like our schools to be generally reflective of our community. Our community is about a 40% white community, 60% non-white community, and that's the sort of desired racial composition that we want. What's the reason for this? They say, well, it's educational diversity. We think that this diversity is important. Now, the idea of operationalizing the concept of diversity through these kind of numerical uh, this kind of notion of numerical proportionality, runs the district into a very serious set of legal problems. Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote a plurality opinion um, and was in the majority in the the Seattle case, says, that's a very odd notion of diversity because it would mean that a school that was 20% white, 30% Asian, 20% black, and 30% Hispanic would not be diverse under the district's definition, too few whites. So what coherence could this idea of diversity possibly have if a school that is so commonsensically diverse doesn't even qualify as diverse under this uh, sort of definition? And I think what that example, which he wrote into into his opinion, exposes is the poverty, really, of our conceptual vocabulary for talking about what we're really talking about. Why is it that the Seattle School District wants a uh, student racial composition roughly reflective of its, um, of its uh, community? Well, I think diversity is only one part of the intuition. Another part of the intuition has to do, surely, with the idea that if we imagined a discrimination-free world, right, we would sort of think that proportional outcomes, racially speaking, would be something that, are, that is likely to obtain And this kind of discrimination-free world is also the caste-free world, the hierarchy-free world, the justice-based world that Brown perhaps envisioned. Another example, the 2003 uh, affirmative action case, the University of Michigan, the Supreme Court decided. University of Michigan law school says, we value educational diversity. Uh, That's why we seek to enroll underrepresented minorities, Native Americans, Latinos and African Americans, uh, up to certain levels uh, in their their law school class. Well, the the majority affirms this, but the dissenters say, that's a very odd idea for how you operationalize diversity. Uh, First of all, why do you choose just those three groups to focus on? What's the intuition there? I thought diversity had to do with the you know, sort of intellectual differences and and contributions that many groups can make. Uh, You're in uh, Michigan, what about uh, the significant Arab American population in Detroit? Why don't they get uh, any consideration under your diversity rubric, right? And furthermore, why are Native Americans, uh, Latinos and African Americans enrolled in a very sort of consistent uh, proportionality in your class year in and year out, you know? Why, why, would, my, my, why might one think that that was the right way to achieve diversity? Why wouldn't we see these levels vary quite a bit or that the levels should be roughly the same because a critical mass for one group would be the same as a critical mass for another group? And these arguments, although they are raised by the dissenters, so these arguments lost in the case, I think would not be lost on, the, on some members of the current Supreme Court and I think they too expose the poverty of our concepts in explaining what exactly is going on here. The notion of focusing on underrepresented groups surely, again, has something more to do with a justice-based conception of what we desire our institutions and student bodies to look like, not just our taste uh, for a culturally diverse campus. Okay, so you get my point. The base, this basic tension between the world that Brown uh, was decided in a simpler world and this more multicultural world is not, I think, easily negotiated by the simple term diversity. And the challenge for us, I think, is to figure out what a better conceptual framework uh, would look like. And we can have some discussion about that. All right, quickly, second third points. My second point is just that we have moved from the time of Brown from a simple fault-based system of legal and policy Uh, reform on issues of race, to a no-fault regime. Fault-based system is very easy to uh, discern at the time of Brown because not only was the racial oppression total, it was legalized. It was legalized through an entire structure of overt um, uh, laws, policies, regulations, practices, official all with the stamp uh, of of officialdom uh, put upon it. And what the court has done, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Gloria Latson billings said a little bit about this yesterday, what the court has done over time is significantly attenuated the fault uh, in the system and sort of said, well, you know, societal discrimination, that's kind of like, you know, you can analogize it uh, to pollution. It's really nobody's fault no single person's fault, it's just kind of out there, right? And so, uh, we are not going to assign specific responsibility to specific governmental actors or specific institutions unless there is concrete, particularized, almost direct evidence of intentional discrimination. So, unless you are, in today's lexicon, an evil-doer, right? You're not going to have a liability for uh, the continuing uh, vestiges of, of past wrongs, okay so that you know this is I could give you all the cases, but you, you know they, they would um, only complicate matters. The idea is that we 've moved from uh, the uh, a world in which it was very easy to see wrongs on the ground traceable to official practices to a world in which the wrongs on the ground are not or at least not set up by the law to be uh, questions of liability uh, for government actors. Okay. What does that mean for a racial justice agenda? What does it mean to have remedies or uh, solutions in a no-fault regime? Well, to me, one thing it means is that we need new forms of accountability. So for example, in the education system, this is why many people in the civil rights community. Think of the No Child Left Behind Act as a civil rights statute. Maybe not the way it's currently written, but the fundamental idea that you would have accountability structures that are not dependent upon the assignment of blame to particular institutions. You know, notice that under No Child Left Behind, when kids don't meet particular standards, there are no questions asked about was it this person's fault or that person's fault, it triggers simply a set of mechanisms that says, you must correct this problem. In that respect, it is something similar to the emerging consensus on how we think about the environment. Although there is plenty of fault to go around, there is a sort of emerging consensus that, regardless of whose fault it is, we have to act on this and we don't have time to sort out exactly uh, who who shares what portion of the blame, right? So we need, I'm not saying that no child left behind is the best uh, answer, but we need new forms of accountability that are not dependent upon this idea of uh, assignment of fault, rather they are simply dependent on the idea that we have certain aspirations for our kids and we have to do affirmatively whatever we think is necessary uh, to get those kids to, our, to those aspirations. All right, third concept and then I'll stop. Um, has to do with the intersection between race and poverty. In the Brown world, race and poverty went together almost uh, completely hand in glove. Not only was the racial oppression total in Brown, it was total also in the respect that that it was not only a social oppression, it was an economic oppression. It was an oppression in every aspect of, uh, of life, and necessarily accruing to the economic cir- circumstances of the black community. One small indicator, uh, 80% of black families, even up to the 1960s, had less income than the median white family. So we're talking about a, if we think about group characteristics, race and poverty sort of being very close aligned Uh, closely aligned in the brown world. Well, what has happened over two generations? Well, we still have close association between race and poverty, but it is not as total as it once was. We have, for example, a quite strong minority middle class in America, thanks in no small part to affirmative action. Um, And so there has been, I think, a slight disjuncture between concepts of poverty, and concepts of race. Uh, I was just reading the New York Times yesterday about uh, black executives uh, in the Fortune 500 companies. You know, I started to feel bad about Stanley O'Neill until I read that he was going to get $150 million for leaving Merrill Lynch, and I thought, well, oh, this guy's, you know, can't feel that bad for him. Um, I mean, that's, that's exceptional. But, but my point is, we don't have the luxury anymore of thinking about social policy about race as encompassing a social policy of class in one breath. These two things sometimes diverge. One way in which they diverge is in affirmative action itself. The primary beneficiaries, it has long been known, of affirmative action are not the bottom uh, tier of the minority racial communities. They are more often than not 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 even middle class blacks but upper middle class Uh, African-Americans and other beneficiaries as named in the programs. Now, this should not be a misleading statement because it is also true at the same time uh, here at Stanford, and I think if you you looked elsewhere, the data show that the income characteristics of the minority students even at very elite institutions is uh, to the left, meaning uh, less well off than their white peers. So, although it is true that minority students are more well off than the average uh, in the country who end up uh, being beneficiaries of affirmative action, they are still to the left of their white peers. But nonetheless, my basic point is, although we we have spent um, lots and lots of energies in our public discourse talking about affirmative action, sometimes thinking that it is um, the almost the be-all and end-all of uh, of our sort of racial uplift policy. It is but the sort of tail wagging the dog in terms of what the real serious challenges facing uh, uh, minority communities really are. And what I would argue is that we have now evolved into a system where we do not have a real social policy that is focused at the intersection of race and poverty. We have affirmative action, which is a race uh, oriented policy that uh, leaves out I think the class dimension and we have had in our country poverty policies that leave out the race dimension. That was the New Deal in its first incarnation. What was Franklin Roosevelt's uh, bargaining chip with the southern moderates to get the New Deal? They would leave out the black farmers and that's exactly what the first statute said. And then you can think of the inverse of that as the 1996 welfare overhaul. You put a black face on poverty and you get welfare reform, right? So we, uh, we have been unable uh, to negotiate this basic intersection between race and poverty in our country, and I think we have to think about this in, again, much more complex ways uh, today than we had in some sense, I mean, it's weird to say this, the luxury of thinking about it, at least conceptually speaking, at the time of Brown. At the time of Brown, one could say a race policy was also a poverty policy, and that is just not the case today. So these three ideas, um, the move from the two-class theory to the multicultural world we live in, the transition from a fault-based system to a no-fault system, and this disjuncture between race and poverty that didn't exist at the time of Brown. These are three, I just offer them as three organizing challenges for a well-intentioned community like ours. Uh, to think more rigorously about how we want to approach um, the issues of racial justice um, that affect uh, uh, all the dimensions of our society still so deeply today. Thank you.
0: to the complexity that Goodwin has already put on our plate uh, in that brilliant talk. That was just spectacular. Um, Hard to follow. (laughs) But uh, just to complexify a little bit more our uh, notions about uh, what the future may hold. So I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the ways in which it's um, the multidimensional nature of trying to think about equity. Uh, affects us in education. But I'd like to start for a moment with the affirmative action question and complexify that a little bit more. We're standing, we're sitting in the shadow of the Hoover Tower. Uh, if you passed it on, some of you may have not have passed it on your way over, but coming from one direction, we do. Um, and so uh, here's the face of early affirmative action at Stanford. This is one of the first affirmative action admittees to Stanford. 2 will come in. That's Herbert Hoover. And in fact, when Stanford was first founded, uh, it was a meritocratic institution uh, where a very small number of people came in. uh, There were no um, particular proscriptions by gender or race, but you had to test your way into Stanford. But they had an affirmative action uh, uh, clause where if you failed the test, but you showed some other indicators of perhaps being able to accomplish something, they would let you in. And that's how Herbert Hoover was admitted to Stanford. It's a true story. Uh, So uh, as we think about affirmative action and and the many dimensions of it, we might want to keep that in mind. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to talk about this issue of equity also in the context of where the United States of America is in its educational progress vis-a-vis the rest of the world, because it really shapes the uh, imperatives for how we deal with equity in some different ways. Uh, Prudence already uh, laid out some of the statistics on the achievement gap. I won't go back over that other than to say it has been widening. Graduation rates are going down as well as achievement scores showing these gaps. Uh, And equity in college going has actually decreased since 1975. In 1975, the proportion of African-American, Latino, and white students going to college was completely equal, and that was one of the results of Uh, affirmative action, the war on poverty, uh, the post-Sputnik years and so on, and it has grown ever since. So we are standing still. But the rest of the world is not. And so when you look at U.S. outcomes in international perspective, you see countries I've highlighted, Finland and South Korea, because they came from way, way behind in the uh, rankings. South Korea is a very poor country was way, way behind. Uh, Finland after communism was pretty much a wreck and they're now near the top and they're also very highly equitable. The outcomes that they achieve are very similar um, uh, irrespective of poverty and um, uh, wealth, uh, family wealth. The US is 19th out of 40 countries in reading. It's 28th out of 40 countries that are measured in math right next to Latvia and our standing has been decreasing regularly. Uh, just to give a sense, in the 1960s, which is the, the green bar, we were number one in the world in terms of sort of baseline qualifications, sort of a high school education. Uh, and then you can see that since the 1970s, we haven't gained at all in the proportion of people uh, becoming qualified at that level. We've been completely static, uh, but the rest of the world has not. So whereas we were first in the world in the 1960s, we're now 13th in this uh, measure of baseline qualifications. Korea was 27th, it's now number one, and so on and so forth. I could spend a lot of time just talking about what's going on in the world, but the point of the matter is that as we become in our public schools, California is already a, quote, majority-minority public school system and will be a, quote, majority quote, minority state by 2025, this is happening across the country, inequality is actually holding back the entire education system. Here you can see that the OECD, which is the European country average, uh, is surpassed in each of the subject areas by whites and Asians. But if you look in the uh, far right of the graph, blacks and Hispanics score so much lower, on every uh, content area that the average for our nation uh, is, is represented um, uh, as falling further and further behind other nations because we are systematically uh, disinvesting in a whole chunk of our population, which is not a strategy that other countries have found <laughs> worthwhile in their effort to enter a knowledge-based economy in the 21st century. You could also notice that we do least well on problem-solving in every group. So that's another part of the problem. It's going to come back to the testocracy that Prudence talked about. The consequences of undereducation are becoming ever more dire. A new high school dropout has less than one chance in two of getting a job, one in five if he is African-American. That job doesn't earn enough to uh, buy or rent an apartment in the Bay Area. Uh, The lack of education is very tightly correlated with incarceration. Um, 80% of inmates are dropouts, and more and more of our population is going to prison. Uh, And in extraordinary ways, the gains in um, prison population, which are competing with education. Uh, Dropouts, of course, cost us uh, an enormous amount in lost wages and so on. Over the last two decades, prison enrollments tripled with the largest increases for young African American and Latino men in California. 50,000 new African-American inmates entered the prison system in the last 15 years. For every 57 young African-American men who went to prison, one was detracted or subtracted from the higher education system. We now do have more African-American young men in prison than in higher education. For every three Latino young men who went to prison, only one went to higher education, and we've gotten to the point where, as of last year, we spent as much in this state on prisons as we spent on higher education. So the proportion, and that is a four times increase in the prison um, budget in California. So what we're doing is we're incarcerating huge proportions of our young population rather than educating them. And that's tightly tied to education, uh, because more than 50% of inmates are functionally illiterate. So if we don't pay to educate them, while Proposition 13 reduced money in our schools throughout all of the time from 1980 to the present, leaving many schools, increasingly apartheid schools, uh, without basic teachers, textbooks, buildings, and kids didn't get educated, we put that money into paying a Harvard tuition for them in prison when they got older. So this is a huge part of the issue that we have to confront. So on the achievement gap, there are all these explanations that we hear that come out in the papers every year, achievement gap, policymakers go, oh my God, there's an achievement gap. And then they kind of, you know, it's really quite a remarkable phenomenon. Um, And then they kind of blame all of these things, you know, lack of effort, culture of poverty, inadequate accountability, we need more testing, we need uh, whatever. The sources of inequality, however, are rarely talked about. Uh, Nationwide, school-serving students of color and low-income students, and this has come up in more than 20 states, uh, equity lawsuits that have been brought over the last uh, few years, lower funding level, larger class sizes, uh, substantially less well qualified teachers, et cetera, et cetera. So these phenomena exist in South Carolina, in New York, in Connecticut, and I mean all over the country, and certainly in California where we've had our own lawsuit. Just to get a sense, we're thought of as an equalized state. The blue bars are districts that serve predominantly white students. You see Sausalito Elementary District over on the left. Some of you have probably been to Sausalito, it's a little uh, marina over there. Um, The ones with the red uh, bars are um, predominantly students of color uh, and especially African-American and Latino students. And you can see the uh, range of spending. Uh, There was an article in the newspaper today about Compton, which was taken over by the state uh, and then not, you know, not fixed. It was fixed fiscally so it could pay its bills, but not fixed educationally. Still the lowest-ranking district in the state in terms of achievement. Uh, And we have uh, uh, an increasingly segregated school system. So most black and Latino students attend uh, predominantly minority schools and a very large share are in what I think of as apartheid schools where 90% or more of the students are students of color. And that's almost half of students of color are in those kinds of schools in a state like California. Within integrated schools, uh, most students of color are tracked into the bottom tracks. You see this... Uh, in this area, in all of the high schools up and down the peninsula, um, even if they are predominantly students of color, the Asian and white, st- mostly white and some Asian students may be in the honors tracks, and in the bottom tracks you'll see African American and Latino students, where they get less well-qualified teachers, uh, a, a lower-quality curriculum, lower-quality materials, and you better believe the students do perceive and uh, receive the message of inequality that is... Um, promoted by that way of organizing schooling. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the importance of teachers to this whole thing because every other reform that we try to implement has to come through teachers. It has to come through teachers and principals in schools who either are going to be able to make things better or not in terms of how they teach. And a lot of evidence suggests that skilled teachers um, are the most important determinant of student achievement. Uh, This is just from one study which shows what a lot of studies show, that the lion's share of the school input to achievement is teacher qualifications. It takes up almost the whole uh, part of the school's piece. Class class size and school size also make a difference. Um, And in powerful schools, the home and family factors take up less of that pie, Uh, but on average, you see that... Uh, Investments in teachers are the most important piece of raising achievement and teachers are the most inequitably distributed of all school resources. This happens to be from Texas. Ron Ferguson did a set of estimates that showed that the black-white student achievement test score gap in Texas um, would have been completely closed, controlling for socioeconomic status, if people got equitably uh, qualified teachers. And that is not the case, not only in Texas, but here. This is California, and it simply shows uh, the tall bars that in high minority schools, the proportion of unqualified teachers is substantially higher than it is in other kinds of schools. So, what happens when we build this kind of an unequal system?
5: Classrooms without qualified math and
1: science teachers. School systems say they just cannot find instructors. For example. Inside this portable classroom at Bret Hart Middle School in Oakland, California, is an eighth grade math class that's been without a regular math teacher for most of the year.
5: How many math teachers have you had?
3: Like, uh, let's see. There is um, Mr. Berry, Ms. Gaines, Mr. Lee, Mr. Dijon, uh, Mr. Franklin. Um, Coach Brown was one of our substitutes one day.
0: Hey, we have Mr. Nakasako. We had Ms. Gaines, we had Ms. Elmore, we had this other man named, he had like curly hair, his name
5: was Mr. So you've had so many teachers you can't Can't remember remember all their names.
0: Yeah.
5: A few miles away at Oakland High School, this ninth grade science class has had nothing but substitutes all year long, the entire year without a certified science teacher. Wow. What has that been like, having, what, 16 teachers or seven or nine during the year?
0: It's just weird. It's like we have to get used to a new teacher
6: every couple of weeks or so. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling shorthanded because this is the third year. Ever since I've gotten in junior high school, I haven't had a science teacher.
5: So you've had substitutes?
0: All three years.
3: All we learn is like the same thing all over again. When a new teacher comes, sometimes we've got to skip chapters and start all over again, and it's difficult.
5: Have you learned much science this year? Nope. Not really. Haven't had a chance to.
0: It breaks my heart.
5: Nancy Caruso teaches science at Oakland High School.
0: People have come from those classes over there, and they come down and they beg me. Can I get into your class? Please, I want to learn. I need a science class. And they're not getting it. So notice three things. Uh, All of those students are African-American or Latino. You would not find this in a school that did not have that population of students. Number two, they are very smart. I couldn't remember the names of all of those people. Um, And number three, this is baked in uh, institutionally. Uh, And they receive that message. You know, anyone who thinks that kids are not receiving these messages is uh, really missing the boat. This little videotape goes on uh, to interview three certified science teachers who had applied to teach in Oakland and had never gotten a call from the personnel office. Uh, And the other piece of what we know about situations like this is that uh, there are qualified teachers available. Oakland systematically failed to hire qualified teachers because their entire budget was based on the notion that they would hire um, substitute teachers and uncertified teachers who cost less uh, and then uh, use... um, Uh, the, you know, money that they could uh, save from that to pay other kinds of bills. Now, this goes back to the inequality in the allocation of resources to districts uh, and a variety of other things. You could find the same phenomenon in Los Angeles and elsewhere. Uh, So the, the notion that somehow we should be surprised when there's an achievement gap Uh, without taking into account the institutional racism that is built into every aspect of the funding system, the allocation of resources, and so on, uh, is just shocking to me. The teaching gap creates most of the achievement gap. There are a lot of studies that show that students' scores on the high-stakes examinations that they now must pass to get promoted from grade to grade, to get graduated from high school, and so on, are significantly correlated with the uh, qualifications of the teachers who they have access to. Duh. Uh, and uh, in the most recent studies that I've done in, as an expert witness in several states, teacher qualifications accounted for more than half the variation in student fail rates uh, on tests in Massachusetts and South Carolina, nearly as much as race and poverty combined. And when you add race and poverty then to the teacher uh, qualifications, you explain almost all the variation in student achievement. So this is uh, something that we could be doing something about. What kind of policies can help? I'm an old English teacher so I like these kind of cartoons. Today you're going to learn the meaning of irony, uh, no child left behind. There are very good intentions of no child left behind and one of the best of those intentions is the highly qualified teacher provision, trying to get more qualified teachers to all students. Certainly the notion that um, Goodwin talked about of the intention to call attention to the achievement of all groups is a laudable and important goal, but the approach so far that the law has taken in the way it's been implemented to date, um, which uh, sets test goals and then punishes schools that don't achieve the goals, ends up. Uh, As we see it playing out, and I certainly do in schools I work with, increasing tracking because kids who do poorly are pulled out. They no longer get science or social studies or anything else. They get test drill uh, kinds of approaches uh, to reading and math. Increases grade retention, which also increases dropout and pushout rates. Um, It reduces access to high-status knowledge, both through that tracking but also through curriculum narrowing. So there are fewer, most African-American and Latino kids in apartheid schools are not getting any science or technology uh, at this point in a world that demands that that, you know, will be part of the major part of the labor force. It reduces access to high-quality teachers. Studies find that good teachers don't want to work in schools that are labeled failing. So it's harder for those schools now to recruit teachers and harder to keep them. And then it tends to re- reinforce this uh, segregation within and between schools and the stereotyping that goes along with it. What happens to students when new standards meet old inequalities? Uh, this is from Massachusetts, which implemented an exit exam at grade 10, which also happens to be the base on which schools' accountability rankings are uh, developed. So in 2003, when that was implemented, you can see that the rate of ninth grade students lost before they got to tenth grade went up sharply, particularly for Latino and African Americans. Uh, They simply aren't moving on in school. The Texas Miracle, which was the basis for the um, No Child Left Behind law, you know, showed these increased scores on the Texas achievement tests and smaller achievement gaps by race and ethnicity. But what we found in a study, Uh, of one of the major uh, districts in Texas is that the proportion of kids not making it from 9th to 10th grade, again, they have a 10th grade test which determines the accountability rankings, is enormous. About half the kids each year are lost between 9th and 10th grade. And by the end of the system, uh, you've got only about 30% of African American and Latino kids actually making it through in this particular school district. Uh, Their scores have been very, very high. If you get rid of the low-scoring kids, it's very easy to get the average up. This is an example that shows that a school that has an average score increasing from 70 to 74, in today's test-driven accountability systems, they would typically get rewarded for that um, gain. But if you look closely at this, what is happening? Anybody want to? Dorothy? Francisco left. So or every kid's score went down. Nobody actually improved their learning, but we got rid of Francisco, and the average went up. And this is happening in a huge way across uh, districts in America. So while test scores are rising, graduation rates are going down in uh, many of these states, uh, particularly those with high-stakes tests, exit exams and um, tests that drive accountability rankings uh, for schools, and they've reached pre-Brown levels in a lot of states for African American and Latino students. So the irony is that our efforts to improve accountability, our efforts to improve equity uh, may actually be leading to less education for more of our students than was the case before. So what do we do about the fact that uh, kids are uh, having this experience in school of not being able to get through? This is where the question of are we trying to implement uh, a better brown or do we need to try, as Gloria Latson billings sometimes says, for um, plessy done fully—that is, you know, separate and except uh, t- separate, separate and work on equal—is a real issue. Um, and here's a dilemma that we experience right here in the Stanford community. We uh, have been working in East Palo Alto, a community that lost its high school in 1975 because of desegregation. It was an all-black community then. It's now African-American and Latino and Pacific Islander. Kids were bused out to surrounding districts. They were placed in the lower tracks. Two-thirds were not making it through high school. Uh, Parents couldn't be engaged, et cetera. So we've started a small public high school in East Palo Alto, which is completely students of color. I don't know using Goodwin's classifications whether we think of it as integrated or segregated, but it is, it does not include um, white students, but kids, in fact, are graduating now and going on to college at rates above 90 percent because the conditions have been set up for them to um, be successful in that context. I want to show you just a glimpse of this because there's a phrase that's used here that's very relevant to our discussion. This is our little school.
5: If this school didn't exist, then the students would be bused into other communities to to go to high school. And the communities they go into are very different than the community they have here. And so one of the goals of the school is to try to create a place where they have a sense of ownership, that they believe that this is their place and that they can construct what's happening here. Students are very
6: involved in determining where they want to go academically. Any student can say, I just don't want to do this. But it takes a strong student to say, yes, I'm going to do
5: this and I'm going to do it best, at the best of my abilities. The number one responsibility I have as a teacher is to just...
0: I'm not going to go uh, into this because we don't have time, but the point is uh, you heard the uh, conversation about this is a place that they can own, that they can call their own, where they can construct their own education. So can we do that in contexts where they are bust in, are interlopers into communities that are ambivalent about them being there, Uh, where teachers are not sure how to teach them, where the uh, setting of the school is constructed for uh, inequality within the school, is a real serious question to which I don't pretend to know the answer. But we have these strategic questions that face us. Should we aim for a well-implemented Plessy rather than a torturously implemented post-Seattle Brown um, as, as we kind of think about the problems that school districts have? And how do we get traction on the broader educational issues that construct the real opportunities for young people in their schools, determine their futures, and also, as I've suggested, will determine our nation's future? Let me just uh, go back to this notion of what some other countries have done and again uh, look at the ones that have had these steep increases uh, as well as those that are are, uh, doing well um, generally. Uh, I've been doing a study of what are these high-achieving and more equitable nations doing that have reduced their achievement gap. And by the way, this is not just because they're less diverse than we are um, or less poverty-strict, you have less poverty or or whatever, because you have a lot of the issues that we have here increasingly in other countries. And certainly places like South Korea have enormous uh, poverty that they're dealing with. But what do they do? They equally fund schools, centrally and equally, and they make additional investments in high-need schools and students. So, you know, the notion that we're going to have construct inequality in the society, high rates of poverty, and then construct inequality in the schools that those kids attend, and then be surprised when there's an achievement gap is just implausible. Uh, they've eliminated tracking. They've made massive investments in teacher education focused on teaching all students well. If you don't have teachers who really understand how to teach kids all in every way, from every angle that they come into school, nothing else works. They completely, they thought about testing completely differently than we do, and there's a whole other conversation to be had about how testing has now become again, as it was in the eugenics movement of the early part of the century, um, and in many uh, eras since then, a tool for reinforcing unequal access to educational opportunity, even while it is being promoted as the tool to achieve educational opportunity. In fact, in many cases, the argument is being made that testing is the same as investing, that all we need for educational opportunity is more testing without the attention to what is actually going to allow people to um, do well um, in the context that they experience. But in these other countries, uh, tests are not used to deny diplomas. They are not used to hold kids back in grade. They are not used, except in Thatcher's England, which is now has been changed in recent years to rank and um, punish schools. Uh, They're used, first of all, in in, uh, essay and oral examinations and science experiments and so on in, in real assessments that measure real learning to focus on improving the investments that go to school and to improve the quality of teaching and learning that goes on. So I'm suggesting that we have to work on a a wide agenda. We cannot work only on the question of where will kids go to school? Um, Will it be in integrated or desegregated or or, uh, segregated settings? We have to work not only on the issue of what kind of resources are available, but we have to work on the issue of what constructs the educational opportunity for kids in schools. And I want to just close with Um, the point that Frederick Douglass made many years ago, because I think uh, the discourse on this issue is not nearly uh, as uh, outraged as it ought to be. Uh, And he made this point that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. If we do not call it, it will not change. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its waters. This is an issue about which we need to be roaring. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much, Goodwin and Linda. We're at about 10.30, and I know we'll want some time between this panel and next, so rather than talk amongst ourselves for a while, we're going to just, I'm making the decision that we'll open it up to you and um, questions in it for a question and answer period. Are there any questions? Yes.
6: The intuition of proportionality, the intuition you said which would lead to proportionality as justice, seems to me to be not only a discrimination-free world, it's a preference-free world if you actually played out that experiment. And that seems to me to be the problem with that intuition, because it would mean that there's no community in the sense of people who feel like they're attached to others because of common background, language, history, narrative could not form groups. There could not be birds of a feather flocking together in society. So it's a radically decommunalized vision, and it seems to me on that grounds, it's a terrible intuition. Um, My question for Linda, I'd be interested in knowing – oh, well, shall I wait? Or, I mean, I could – I was just asking, was
0: that a question?
6: (laughs) my, 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 My question for Linda was how early ontogenetically does the achievement gap appear. I've seen people present evidence in which at entrance into school, the achievement gap is there. And when you look at rich versus poor schools, it's there in first grade, it's there in eighth grade. Everyone learns over time, but the gap doesn't change. And being in a rich school, in fact, doesn't produce a greater gap over time. So that all of the correlates you were talking about, of course, are going to be there when you compare rich and poor schools. But the implication of that evidence is that all the action's really in families before you get to school, and schools are really secondary. And if you really want to make a difference, you intervene earlier and in families. And I wonder what you think of that perspective. Should
2: I go first and then we'll come
0: back? Um, clearly there is um, – and this is crosshatched with poverty, as um, Goodwin said earlier. Uh, difference for many kids coming into school in the language they've developed in a variety of things, and preschools can help offset some of that if there's enough follow-up. But there is also the reality that um, in analyses that look at different kinds of schools, that some schools start with that achievement gap and manage to reduce it. Others start with that achievement gap and it gets wider. And it gets wider in contexts where the school doesn't have the resources in place to try to um, make up for some of the differences that occur certainly uh, by poverty and cross-rust by race uh, in entrance. So it is partly what happens before school begins uh, but we don't structure many of our schools to uh, either maintain that in a parallel track or even to reduce that gap. We allow a system that allows that gap to expand and there are many, many urban districts where analyses show that the achievement gap gets wider the longer the kids are in school.
4: Um, To your questions about um, first Powell um, and the diversity notion, you're absolutely correct that Powell's notion of educational diversity was explicitly said to be broader than a notion of racial diversity. And so he thought of racial diversity as just one component of what an educationally diverse educational environment would be. And um, this actually is a significant limiting idea with respect to uh, how affirmative action programs can properly be implemented because his whole idea was that you can't just have a freestanding affirmative action program that's based on race. What you need is that that program needs to be embedded within an overall university mission and admissions is only one part of it overall university mission and set of policies and practices that are meant to get at this idea of educational diversity across all its dimensions, religious, intellectual, uh, political and otherwise. And so this also has been a bugaboo I think for universities implementing the program because they become so fixated on how they're using race and their policies without thinking more broadly institutionally about what kind of practices they're actually doing to make good on the idea as Powell conceived of it which which is a much broader notion. Your second question, I think, is trickier. Um, and I think um, here, proportionality is a very um, controversial concept. Um, and, and you kind of, I, I think, rightly attacked it from the idea of um, the idea that cultures are important and pluralism is important um, with respect to uh, people, choices people make about who they'd like to associate with and, and, um, and the kind of important uh, life that, that you get in a society from those kind of cultural associations. Um, another critique, um, which I think is, is similar, isn't as communal, but it is radically individualistic and atomistic, um, which is simply to say that proportionality flies in the face of the entire notion of private choice Whether it is we want to associate in communities or not, is a whole different matter, but it's just that, you know, people should be allowed to to choose, you know, where they want to live, who they want to, you know, uh, sit at a lunch counter with, um, who they want to uh, be in a club with. And those things shouldn't be dictated by some sort of uh, government edict, okay. Well, I think that um, the response, my response to that would simply be that um, in a stable society, I think it is true, we need um, to make a distinction between private spaces and public spaces. And in private spaces, we should have um, important cultural forms that are nurtured um, in terms of their autonomy and their uh, integrity. Um, So, you know, a microcosm of that is that here on this campus and as many, many campuses, there are ethnic centers. They serve as a kind of cultural space in which um, groups can form their own identity and not as a form of separatism, rather it's a, it's a way to enable them to get their bearings to then engage with the wider world. Right? But that's, that's an important framing issue. I think in public spaces, and of course the border between the public and the private is the tricky part, but everybody would agree that there are such things as public spaces. Think of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Things that were once thought private spaces, for example, a restaurant or a hotel or a movie theater, privately owned. right? are now converted into our public culture as public spaces in which anti-discrimination norms uh, have their uh, strong force, right? So this negotiation between what our public and private spaces are not sort of determined legalistically by whether or not it's a private entity or not, they have more to do with our cultural understandings of what are the places in which we have certain expectations of fair treatment and other places where we have expectations of autonomy. And I would just simply say that uh, w- whereas the categories are blurry, the categories do exist and the boundary between them is being negotiated every day.
3: Here in the middle. Um, this yes. question is mostly for goodwin Blue. I was wondering how you evaluate
0: um, uh, Justice if in a Court decision regarding the Seattle and Louisville school districts as to whether he leaves any room open for school districts to um, implement
6: any measures to achieve racial diversity.
4: Right, okay, so um, so in the most recent school desegregation case this year um, the court split um, in the same way actually that it split in the Bakke decision, which is to say it split 414 among the justices. You have four justices basically saying you know you can use race to desegregate schools, that should be no problem, and then you have four justices who say you can virtually never use race for this purpose. And you have Justice Kennedy in the middle sort of saying you can sometimes do it, you sometimes can't, uh, and he comes up with some sort of you know hand-wringing test for how you do it. Um, let me say that I, I think that, um, you know, his, basically what he says is you can desegregate schools so, and, and you can consider race so long as you don't individually classify students on the basis of an individual student's race. So what does that leave, you might ask, well what does that leave available, (laughs) right? What he says is that leaves available race conscious measures. Um, So for example, zoning, school siting, uh, how you distribute resources, creating a magnet school, these kinds of macro policy oriented things that can have an eye towards the racial composition of the resulting school but don't individually classify kids and make decisions based on, you know, you're black, you go here, you're white, you go there, you're brown, you go there. Okay, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, the answer is I don't know. That's going to, whether or not these, for for example, zoning, whether or not zoning is going to be useful in a a particular community depends a lot on the racial demography of that community. So, for example, in Berkeley, where I live, um, actually, we do have a plan that looks Uh, something like what Justice Kennedy prescribes and it actually works to racially integrate the schools. I don't know if that plan can be transplanted to, for example, San Francisco, which is a much bigger district grappling with similar issues, but you know, over a a broader geographic area. The, The more basic point I'd like to make about Kennedy's opinion and the most recent case is that one thing we ought to realize about the desegregation discussion is that most of the segregation that occurs in public schools in America occurs across districts, not within districts. Uh, the demographic studies suggests that it's about a two-thirds, one-third proportion, meaning two-thirds of the total segregation we have out there, if you decompose it, uh, is segregation that's occurring across districts. This is a segregation that's been facilitated by Supreme Court decisions that limited the reach of desegregation remedies to the district line. And what that means is that in practical effect, what the Supreme Court decision is dealing with is one-third of the problem. And in that one-third of the problem, I think that uh, we have some room to think creatively, uh, particularly in those, uh, I think, emerging communities, particularly in the suburbs, frankly, that are becoming much more diverse and, frankly, um, having many more poor students than they ever had. But what the decision has virtually nothing to do with is the kind of apartheid schools that Linda just talked about, where You know, the notion of desegregation is an irrelevance. If you go to Detroit and you're talking about a 100% African-American school district, or if you go to Cleveland, similar thing, or Washington, D.C., similar thing, uh, you're not talking, you're not having a relevant discussion about uh, desegregation, and that, as Linda says, is half or more of the kids, right? So we need to think about, you know, the narrative of Brown, uh, I think as Linda was suggesting, not... Uh, through this lens, simply of where kids go to school, because those options have been severely hemmed in by a whole set of things that are unlikely to be reversed in the near future.
3: Gentleman in the back, Professor Reardon. Uh,
5: I just wanted to uh, thanks. I just wanted to um, follow up on this question about the achievement gap and and just add a, a, a piece of information to that. But, The achievement gap uh, between blacks and whites and Latinos and whites is quite big when kids enter school, but the black-white gap at the entrance to school is um, almost entirely explainable by socioeconomic differences between the two groups. And that's no longer true as kids get older. That is, the gap grows during school in ways that aren't attributable to family background, so that by fifth grade, say, the, the gaps are much bigger and the part of the gap that's grown is no longer... Uh, about families suggesting that schools really are implicated. Um, What we don't know I think really well is what features of schools are changeable through policy that would affect that gap and so I wonder Goodwin and Linda if you might speak to that.
0: Uh, Which features are changeable by policy? You know we can only uh, extrapolate from studies that have found improvements in achievement for students of color uh, to the policies that might you know, help that. And those um, include both um, studies like those that look at teacher quality effects like some of the ones I mentioned. They include studies that look at the effects of access to curriculum. Adam Gameron's work and others who find that if you take two kids and give one of them uh, who are equally, uh, have equal achievement scores and track one of them up into a rigorous curriculum and one down into a less rigorous curriculum at the end of the day. The curriculum will determine the achievement more than the starting place. So curriculum, differentials, organizational features of schools like the ones that Tony Breik and Valerie Lee and others have pointed to around how Uh, Schools can be restructured to be both more personalized and um, uh, allow teachers to become more thoughtful about their work. So there are a variety of things that have policy flags on them um, that have been found in research that can make a difference. Uh, How you then construct systems of schools that may have more of those features uh, for students who are not currently getting access to them is, you know, a whole nother Uh, challenge, but that's the challenge I think I'm suggesting we need to start to take up uh, because as Goodwin just uh, said, you know, we're not going to desegregate schools. And and there's a lot of evidence that when you desegregate schools those features don't always get put in place in ways that enable kids to achieve anyway. So I think we've got to start looking at exactly those things. And thank you for the clarification on the achievement gap question.
3: I I, want to say something. I take uh, my prerogative as the, as the moderator here and ask a question um, in terms of, Goodwin, one of the things you mentioned was the change in the notion of diversity and also the change in how we see the intersections of race and poverty over time uh, and how the discourse needs to actually become a little bit, not a little bit, but different um, in this era. And I wonder if we can also apply that same argument to the notion of achievement. How are we discussing achievement in the fixation just on tests? Can we problematize it more or are we going to continue to succumb to the notion that achievement is only measured by an indicator of standardized test scores? Like, is there something, should we be talking more about what are the mechanisms that get kids engaged and attached to schools which are also mediators? Two achievements. Could I say one
0: thing about that? I know uh, Goodwin will have something to say Uh, as well. I'm just thinking about the question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things, I've worked a lot with uh, schools in New York and California and elsewhere that have uh, started to create um, new learning communities particularly targeted to low-income students of color that achieve dramatic changes in the curriculum to which kids get access the extent to which they get through school, pass their classes, um, are able to be prepared to get admitted to college, go to college and succeed in college, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are many, many dimensions of the achievement question. In many of these schools, test scores are the last thing to budge, and they don't budge nearly as much as all of those other features of achievement and accomplishment, and yet the accountability mechanisms right now are, are located Substantially on test scores, I, I do believe there are issues around the tests themselves and the way they 're used and I think about the examples that Jay Rosner from the Princeton Review often provides where he will show questions uh, on which African American kids do better on the SAT and those on which um, white kids do better they 're pre tested and so on. Uh, And you can't distinguish them by anything obvious about the difficulty level of the questions, et cetera. But then he asked the question, how many of the uh, questions that favor black students appear on the SAT? And the answer is zero. And the reason it's zero is because there is a set of uh, psychometric strategies that are used to figure out which items will appear on the test that decide that if the usual high scores don't do well on items that differentiate among groups, uh, then those items are the ones that get pitched out. I mean, there are whole sets of things that go on in test construction. Uh, it's a long conversation and a complicated one, and, but I think that relying only on tests, which then, uh, though tagged as the arbiters of equity, often are used to then say, you haven't achieved this test score, you can't get access to this class, you can't get access to this opportunity, etc., which then shuts down those other options for kids is really problematic for us.
4: Um, Prudence, I knew you'd ask the hard question. Um, I think your question has a lot of different facets. Um, At the most macro level, I think it is a question about what's the purpose of education. Um, But that's too big a subject, so I won't (laughs) say anything about it. Um, I think that, you know, um, I have a slightly, you know, I I have a maybe slightly less um, skeptical view about the uh, test testocracy, if if we can use that term, than than, uh, Linda and Prudence have. And I guess um, one perspective on it is to be informed by uh, what came before and what the world is looking like beyond. So just to address the latter part first, um, the, tr- the, the reality, I think, is that we want a lot of things from our schools. There's, there's no doubt. We want schools to produce good citizens. We want them to produce people of good moral character. Um, but I think that um, uh, there, the dominance of the economic discourse about the, about the purpose of schools Um, reflects the changing reality of the world and what it means to be um, economically productive in it. Um, For a long time, I think, um, the literature had uh, settled on the idea that attainment, meaning how, you know, uh, whether you have a diploma, whether you have a bachelor's degree, attainment mattered to people's outcomes and achievement, meaning uh, how much you learn as measured by these tests didn't matter as much. But I think that that actually is changing. There's an important paper that Eric Kanuszek published um, in the Economics of Education Review um, that suggested that achievement actually has important earnings um, uh, correlates. And so I, th- you know, I, th- I I only you know just sort of reading the tea leaves, I sort of think that that's kind of the direction we're headed in. And so if you or if you're simply asking, is it important that kids sort of be focused on reading and math, you know, the sort of basic building blocks of what this testocracy is about, one would have to conclude that in the cognitively rich world that they're going to inhabit, the answer has to be yes. Um, And so this obsession, I think, with with the tests um, reflects, I think, this this sort of primary concern. Now, there are several questions beneath that about whether the tests are used appropriately. Um, You know, so tests are not then only devices of measurement to make sure we're reaching some important goal they are then used as the policy mechanisms themselves to actually, it's sort of like you know, Linda says test and invest, right? I mean there's no investing going on, there's just the test. Um, I love the rhyming um, and maybe we ought to have an agenda that says test and invest. But I think that the the, the basic point is that we haven't figured out yet, and NCLB is not a uh, sort of perfect, uh, by any means, uh, mechanism. We haven't figured out yet how to take the good part of NCLB which is the transparency that the testing regime has uh, gotten us. I mean, there has been a bright light shown on the inequalities that exist in the system, I think largely as a result of people having to pay attention to these tests and the resulting achievement gaps. The reason we're even having this discourse is because we have all these tests that sort of make what we would like to ignore unignorable. Okay, so that's, that's I think the good part. We haven't figured out yet how to use information from the tests in real time to improve instructional practice. And it seems to me that there are a lot of things in NCLB that could be changed. For example, you know, we shouldn't be rewarding schools that drop students out or push them out. So that should be built into the accountability system in an intelligent way. I know Linda's worked on that. Um, We ought to figure out um, how to reduce the testing burden on the school. So why is it that important to test kids, you know, every year from grades three to eight? Wouldn't half as much testing give us the diagnostic that that we really need there? And then how to use the information to actually make policy decisions Uh, So, for example, the the maldistribution of teachers that Linda described, how do we um, use uh, test results uh, to, in a sense, uh, make the policy cases um, that would lead to a better distribution of teachers um, that doesn't create perverse incentives for good teachers to avoid um, low-performing schools. These are the things, I think, that need to be worked out in the... Pol- in, they are not just sort of small policy details, but they are, I don't think, uh, indictments of the overall goal, which, you know, I, as much as we don't like the tests, every time, you know, I see empirical demonstrations of what's wrong with the education system, they come back to what the tests reveal. And so that is always our starting point, and so presumably uh, the premise of this is that in a more just world with a better set of education results, we would see the tests show different results. And so, you know, I I just sort of caution us a little bit um, not to sort of completely abandon uh, some of the fundamental premises that we seem not to always make explicit, but I think that we carry around with us regarding the test.
3: Linda, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I I don't
0: disagree with most of of what you've just said. Um, One of the things I think, though, that is a real dilemma in this country I mean, you've attended to the uses of the tests, which are often quite inappropriate and so on. But we also don't pay much attention to what's on the test and how we are doing testing. And that is a real problem for us. And as I, I've been now in recent, um, last couple of years to Sweden, Finland, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Australia, all of them in the top 10 high-achieving countries in the world, they do not use the kind of testing that we do. And they don't use it for the purposes that we use it. And one of the problems with Uh, using the kinds of tests we use, which are primarily multiple choice tests of a particular kind that measure primarily recall and recognition of specific discrete pieces of information rather than 21st century skills of the ability to, uh, you know, read real books and uh, write extensively and do research and inquire and do investigations, which are built into the assessment systems of these other countries in very, very prominent ways such that our tests are not very good predictors of success in college. They're not very good predictors of success later in life. They're not actually very good predictors of what people can do in the real world. So that uh, part of our, our, our issue is the extent we're going to use assessments, hopefully better used in the ways that Goodwin has talked about, um, for the purposes that would actually shape investment and improvement, we also have to be uh, mindful of Uh, really rethinking the way in which we do assessments so that it actually asks kids to do the things that will be related to whether they can succeed in college, whether they can succeed in the workforce and so on. And that conversation is not occurring in the policy arena. Um, And I think it is partly about the psychometrics, not only of the way the tests are constructed, which is a very long conversation, but even what we conceptualize as testing in this country. Um, that has both severe equity effects and severe educational quality effects. And those educational quality effects are most experienced by students of color. So there are lots and lots of schools where school is doing test prep materials all day long. There are not books in classrooms. Kids are not reading at all. There is no science being taught. Uh, The kind of, there is no writing occurring. That's one of the reasons that the uh, achievement gap gets bigger in many urban districts as kids go along because if their early years are spent drilling on the kinds of tests they experience, they are not getting the fundamental thinking and performance skills they need to succeed in middle school, high school and beyond. So we need to problematize what the tests are as well.
3: Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. We have another panel that is going to begin at 11, but I want to ask you to please join me in another rousing round of applause for our wonderful, wonderful panel.
0: The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.